presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Three months after Governor Little's first stay-at-home order, discussions about COVID-19 have turned political. We talk about the issues and what the long-term implications might be. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News joins us to discuss recent court rulings affecting Idaho education. Then Logan Finney of Idaho Reports and Scott McIntosh of the Idaho Statesman discuss critics of Governor Brad Little's COVID-19 response from within his own party. But first, a COVID-19 update for the week. As the state has increased testing, the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare is reporting more cases, but the percentage of positive returns is also rising, telling us that our spike in cases isn't just because of an increase in testing capacity. On Wednesday, Ada County reverted back to stage three following a spike in cases and an order from Central District Health. Also Wednesday, the state set a new record for the most new cases reported in one day with 243. The Idaho Department of Health and Welfare reported another 220 cases on Thursday, hours after Governor Brad Little announced the state had not met the criteria to advance out of stage four of reopening Idaho. Most of the new cases this week are in Treasure Valley. Ada and Canyon counties alone have reported more than 600 new cases so far this week. Up north, Kootenai County is also seeing a small spike with about 50 cases. That's after three months of little to no recorded activity in the Panhandle region. Magic Valley continues to see activity with more than 100 new cases between Twin Falls, Jerome, Kaja, and Minidoka counties. Looking at demographics, Hispanics make up about 35% of known cases in Idaho, though they make up just 13% of the population. People ages 18 to 29 make up the highest percentage of known cases at 31%, and people in their 30s are the second highest. But the virus continues to be the most deadly for people who are older than 50. There are currently no recorded deaths in Idaho for anyone younger than 50, and 65% of the state's deaths have occurred in people people ages 80 or older. That's despite that age group making up the smallest percentage of known cases. There are currently 57 known cases on three of Idaho's five tribal reservations. This week, the Nez Perce reported two additional cases on their reservation, bringing their total to 20. The Coeur d'Alene tribe has a total of 28, and the Shoshone Bannock reported an additional case on Friday, bringing their total to seven. Idaho's ICU bed and ventilator capacity continues to remain above the threshold set by the state of 50 each. Of the state's nearly 5,000 known cases, about 3,700 are presumed recovered. By the state's definition, that just means the patient is still alive 30 days after the reported date of their positive test, so it doesn't necessarily mean that they no longer have symptoms or long-term effects. We've seen an, seen an increase in infections among healthcare workers. Currently, 
about 460 have tested positive. For the latest numbers, make sure you follow Idaho Reports on Facebook and Twitter. While families wait for news about what the fall semester will look like, policymakers have been keeping their eyes on the courts. Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News joined us Friday morning to give us an update on recent court cases involving public education. Thanks so much for joining us this week, Kevin. Lots of education news, mostly from the courts this week. Let's start with the uh, lawsuit from Superintendent Yabara. Yeah, it's been like court TV week and, and in the education world, but uh, long-awaited decision from the state Supreme Court on Monday uh, regarding Superintendent Navarra's lawsuit against the legislature and the state board and a, and a fairly resounding result. The, the Supreme Court ruling unanimously in favor of the legislature and in favor of the state board, effectively saying that the legislature followed the Constitution in March when it decided to move 18 positions and $2.7 million out of the bar's State Department of Education and put it under the jurisdiction of the State Board of Education. Uh, the constitutional matter was fairly cut and dried. As you read the opinion from the Supreme Court, uh, uh, Justice Mueller, uh, writing on behalf of the court, said, this is an issue that's been around for 130 years, that we're really just revisiting you know, you know, issues from the state's founding. You know, so we, we had the issue of the, the budgetary appropriations, but then we had the issue of this fight between the tension between Superintendent Ibarra and the legislature that we've long talked about, but this really laid it out in front of everybody very, very publicly. Well, I think this whole lawsuit really laid bare the tensions between Sherry Ibarra and the legislature. It wasn't just a lawsuit about the Constitution. If you read the court filings, uh, Sherry Ibarra and Marilyn Whitney, her per point person at the State House, laid out this, uh, this scenario, this chronology of uh, lawmakers who wanted to dismantle the Department of Education, or maybe even turn the state superintendent's position into an appointed position rather than a, an elected position. Yeah, I, I have to wonder how that personal aspect of this lawsuit, what sort of residual effect that's gonna have, because Sherry Ibarra and the legislature have not seen eye to eye on, on a lot of issues over the years. Several of Ibarra's legislative uh, proposals have gone nowhere at the state house. So now you have to wonder what sort of you know, residual feelings are going to uh, result from this lawsuit uh, and you know, how that relationship between Ibarra and the legislature plays out in a very tight budget here. Yeah. And, and really, as a practical matter, you got to remember what the Supreme Court did here. They gave the legislature the green light to do exactly what they did. So if there are lawmakers who are still concerned about the State Department of Education, still concerned about performance in, in Sherry Ibarra's department, they absolutely have, have carte blanche to do exactly what they did and, and go after other aspects of the department and the department's budget. And every session is a critical uh, session for education, but especially the, as we're moving into this unknown with COVID-19 and potential huge budget cuts for public education, that relationship being strained could be a, a critical point this next year. Exactly, Governor Little is bracing public education to expect a 5% budget cut. That's a $99 million cut whether it comes to fruition or not, or whether it's even deeper, that's really hard to predict at this point. It really kind of, it, it hinges on what happens with the economy and what sort of uh, response uh, you have to the coronavirus and what sort of economic 
uh, response you see between now and January, but it's going to be a tight year for public education. There's no two ways around that. Yeah, uh, with Reclaim Idaho's lawsuit, this was in federal court, so a, a different, um, slightly different arena, but Judge Lynn Windmill ruled that Reclaim Idaho uh, either has extra time to collect more signatures or that it should go on the ballot with the signatures that they collected. A dramatic turnaround in court because you have to go back to March in the beginning of the pandemic when Reclaim Idaho suspended its uh, signature gathering drive just in the home stretch, just in the final few weeks to, to get that initiative on the ballot. Uh, essentially giving up the, the the initiative for debt. Willen Windmill's ruling really breathes new life into that initiative and, and really puts the onus on the state. Uh, Windmill said the state has two options. They can either outright put the initiative on the ballot, no questions asked, or they can give Reclaim Idaho 48 days to gather the remaining required signatures and do it electronically. Now, the state says it's going to appeal. And as we speak here on Friday morning, uh, it's not clear to me where we are in that appeal process, except that uh, Governor Little has been explicit about wanting to appeal this uh, case to the circuit court. Now, if this gets on the ballot, though, this is a very big ballot question. This is a $170 million initiative uh, designed to increase income taxes and put the proceeds into K-12 funding. It, it's a very um, it's a very important initiative if it gets on the ballot one way or another. You know, knowing what our unemployment rates are, knowing the uncertainty again as we move forward with this COVID-19 response, if this does get on the ballot, how much do you think that that changes the voters' perception of this initiative? Because on one hand, you have deep potential cuts to education, but on the other hand, you have a lot of people who are really worried about their own financial security. It's always going to be hard sell to increase taxes in that magnitude in any economy, but as you mentioned, it's, it's going to be a tighter economy. Now, there are ways, I suppose, that Reclaim Idaho would, would probably want to position this if they do get it on the ballot and, and say that if you if you increase income taxes for, for the wealthy and for corporations, you could potentially be, uh, it, it could potentially result in a property tax reduction because school districts may be less reliant on supplemental levies. It may come at the same time as uh, other forms of property tax relief as the governor has uh, signaled support of. So uh, there are ways, I suppose, that Reclaim would, would try to, to couch this and position it and, and sell it if it gets on the ballot. But yeah, it's $170 million of new taxes in a down economy, and you know that there's, there's going to be a pretty extensive lobbying effort on, on both sides of this issue. Last week, we had your colleague Clark Corbin on to talk about uh, what the state is doing, or rather what they're giving up when it comes to their response and returning to uh, physical school buildings in the fall. You know, last week, Clark told us that the state is largely leaving it up to these local school districts. What are we seeing this week? Well, we're seeing the you know, fast-track work of one of the, the governor's committees on reopening. This is the committee that's going to provide advice to school districts and charters regarding reopening. And advice is the key word. This is not going to be a mandate. Uh, it's going to be entirely up to school districts and charters to figure out what to do. They, they don't even need to get uh, the support of the local health district. They, they, they're going to be able to do whatever they want. Um, 
I've been struck this week as we watched what's happening with the, the spike in coronavirus cases, with the, the action by Central District Health to uh, return some of the restrictions in Ada County. And yet at the same time, we were, we're seeing very similar spikes in cases, not just in Ada County, but right across the, the county line in Canyon County in a different health district. Yeah, I think this is a foreshadow of what we can expect when schools try to reopen in the fall. You know, if, if there's you know, inconsistencies or if there are uh, different interpretations from one health district to another, well, that's seven health districts. We're talking about 115 school districts and about 70 charter schools and administrators and trustees and all those uh, jurisdictions are going to figure out what they want to do. It's going to be a hodgepodge. It, it's almost, it, it's inevitably going to be a mixture of uh, schools opening, some schools maybe closing, some schools maybe with plans to to do a, a an immediate closure if there's a spike in cases in the community. Uh, it's it's going to be all over the map, and, and it's going to be a major job of ours to try to figure out who's open, who's closed, and under what circumstances and under what conditions. And that might change as the months go on, because if we, we might be fine in August, but then see a spike in October in some of these communities. Exactly. If what we're hearing from the health experts comes to fruition and there is a second wave and it's uh, in, you know, in conjunction with a spike in flu cases, uh, that's going to force uh, you know, a, a lot of rapid and very localized decisions. I mean, we've seen, we see schools close routinely uh, for a day or two here or there because of a flu outbreak. That's a flu outbreak. And we're talking about coronavirus here. We're not talking about the flu. Uh, so if you have a spike in coronavirus cases, you could have a, a very different and potentially a lot more lasting response uh, from a district or a charter. All right, Kevin Richard, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. On Tuesday, a group of conservative Republican lawmakers met at the State House to discuss their grievances with Governor Little's COVID-19 response as supporters watched from the gallery. Idaho Reports was there. Here's a taste of how the morning went. We believe that uh, there's been some overreach um, and the legislators have really, really, really tried and our constituents have really been on our backs. So we tried to convene today. We tried to get a quorum uh, that did not work, but um, but we are signing on to something and giving it to our governor just to let him know that we really, really uh, want to be a part of these decisions. I took an oath to the Constitution to defend and protect it. And when it is being violated, I think it's my duty to speak up. We have never had an opportunity to publicly say how we feel. We need to be able to make sure that the checks and balances of government are solid and in place. If the legislator came back in, we would make sure that the governor just can't shut it down anymore without us being a part of it. When we left in March, I told people, I said, you know, we're going to have to come back in a special session in June because the budgets are going to be blown up. I don't think we can wait till January. We don't have any idea how many horrible things can happen between now and January. Uh, we're going to be broke before you know it, and we haven't even been invited in to try to see what to even do about the appropriations that we already did. My district is suffering, and Clearly County has a lot of suicides, and it's upsetting. Um, businesses are suffering, farmers are suffering, masses are suffering. I'm here for them. I get calls and people crying on the phone 
They've been waiting 10 and 13 weeks to see their first unemployment check for a condition the government caused in the first place. And if they haven't had enough time in 13 weeks to get that under control, we have a massive meltdown. I would not want to be the governor. I would not want to be in his shoes. He was damned if he did, he was damned if he didn't. And we're not here against the governor, we're here against the system. And the system is what needs to be fixed. Our, our state is out of control right now, and we are, we, we've about lost the republic because of a self-appointed tyrant, and basically setting out edicts, changing things every day, and, and I, I truly believe a civil war is coming if we do not put an end to what we're seeing. And that's why I showed up today, because we have got to be a voice for the people. Amen. The rally and meeting wrapped up before noon, but the tensions between Republicans haven't gone anywhere. Scott McIntosh of the Idaho Statesman and Logan Finney of Idaho Reports both attended the meeting and joined us Friday morning to share their insights as well as how these political fights might shake out long term. Logan, Scott, thank you so much for joining us. You both attended the meeting of liberty-minded lawmakers on Tuesday, and there were a number of grievances. Scott, can you kind of give us a rundown of what topics came up on Tuesday? Sure, in general, it was, you know, grievances about Governor Brad Little's handling of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, they brought up a couple of specific you know, what I thought were very reasonable um, complaints. You know, they talked about state spending. Um, they had talked about, you know, the, the pandemic and the shutdown was gonna blow up the state budget and they likely were gonna have to come back and in June to, to reconfigure the budget. Uh, well, the budget did get blown up, but the legislators haven't been called back. Uh, they also took issue with how uh, the state spending $1.25 billion in federal relief funding. Uh, and the legislators have no uh, say in how that's being spent. Um, and so, you know, I think that there were a lot of points that they made that um, that they felt that they were being left out of the process. You know, they referred to themselves as, as being non-essential um, and uh, felt that they needed to have a bigger role in what was going on. Can you talk a little bit about what the tone was, Logan? Because they were surrounded by supporters. There were no lawmakers there who disagreed with them. It wasn't a, a special session. Um, and that was a point that Representative Boyle, one of the organizers, uh, conceded almost immediately that day that they didn't have a quorum. It was only people there who agreed with them. So how did that affect the tone of the day? Um, the tone of the day was pretty... I don't want to say festive. Festive isn't the right word, but uh, people were definitely excited to be there. And uh, up in the gallery, before the legislators came out on the floor, there was a lot of chatter. I've never seen the gallery in the house that full or that noisy before. Um, and uh, it was a, it was a pretty excited atmosphere. Uh, and then you know they told everyone to be quiet before the legislators came in. They told all of us in the press to go stand over by the press section. So they um, you know it kind of transitioned from that festive atmosphere into something more solemn and more serious, more like a traditional legislative session. Um, but like you say, there wasn't any cross debate. It was largely people agreeing with each other and bouncing off of each other's ideas, more of a, a round table discussion between the legislators, if anything. And those grievances they brought up, Scott, earlier this week, you wrote for the statesman about how there were actually a number of legitimate concerns that lawmakers raised. 
Right, and I think those legitimate concerns, you know, kind of devolved into um, more of the um, far right, uh, some conspiracy theory, very anti-governor uh, uh, little. Um, I think that there were some legislators who were more conciliatory, you know, uh, Representative Brent Crane and even Representative Chad Christensen were a little more conciliatory in saying that, you know, we're not here to bash the governor. Um, and we understand the position he's in, uh, but we do want more of a voice in, in the state spending and um, and how some of the shutdown has happened. You know, should we be shutting down the whole state because of an outbreak in Boise? Um, and so they talked about that, but then it did kind of devolve into this hyperbolic over the top kind of this is, you know, the, the, the republic is at, at risk and we're going to lose the republic here. Um, there were, uh, you know, questions about contact tracing is going to be um, an excuse for taking babies away from their mamas. Um, uh, Representative Heather Scott said this is, uh, you know, possible coming of the second civil war um, and calling Brad Little a uh, self-appointed tyrant. There's just, there's a lot of hyperbolic um, um, uh, vitriol that, that kind of got injected into the conversation of, eventually. And a, and a quick fact check, we had both the governor and uh, Idaho Par Department of Health and Welfare Director Dave Jepson on the show on Thursday. They made it very, very clear that there is no truth to that rumor that um, kids will be taken away from their parents be as a result of contact tracing or a positive COVID-19 test result. Um, so, so you heard a lot of these conspiracy theories, though, on, on Tuesday from these elected officials. Yeah, and I, I and I think when you're talking about, you know, so one of the main things is that they want to call themselves back into a special session. They want uh, Governor Little to call them into a special session. And in fact, the the Republican, the state Republican convention uh, that's going on right now, they are passing uh, planks of their platform that call for uh, a constitutional amendment to allow the legislature to call themselves back into session. You know, they did talk a lot about um, having a multitude of counselors, which I think is, you know, a reasonable thing. Um, but when you have legislators who are starting to talk about, you know, Representative Ron Mendive said that, um, uh, you know, we weren't, we weren't suspending the Constitution back during the Spanish flu, um, you know, not recognizing that Number one, there were 675,000 Americans who lost their lives to Spanish flu, but also there were restrictions. There were uh, restrictions that were put in place, as, as your show uh, pointed out last week, um, that were put in place. And so when you've got that kind of over-the-top and conspiracy uh, theory-laden uh, talk, you can understand why Governor Little might not be in such a rush to call these folks back into a special session. If that's the counsel that he's going to get, um, I can understand why he would not want that that kind of counsel. And Logan, and even, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Logan. Oh, I was going to say, um, even with only 15 out of 105 led lawmakers there, um, the the intra-party divide was still pretty pretty visible. On one hand, you had folks like uh, Representative Shepard from Riggins who said, "We don't know what this is going to look like by November. We we have no idea how bad this this." pandemic situation is going to devolve to. Whereas on the other hand, you had some representatives who seem like like Scott is saying that this is some big conspiracy, an excuse for, for government control of the entire world. Um, and it, it's a pretty pretty stark difference if you're gonna call the legislature in if 
one third of the body is saying that, hey, this is a real crisis, we need to do something. And a third of the body is saying, this is all fake, we have nothing to worry about. I'm not even sure how effective the legislature would be if they were called back. I mean, you have 105 total lawmakers, but the House Republican Caucus is about 50 members. And so there's a, a big difference in the percentage of how many people are buying into the conspiracy theories when you're looking at just the House Republican Caucus versus the whole entire legislature with 105 people. Do you think that this divide among House Republicans in their support of the governor um, is going to be an issue possibly with leadership elections or with how they look at Governor Little's proposals for the 2021 legislative session. Now I'll toss it, it to Scott. Yeah, I, I think it's a possibility. And I think when, you, when we just had the primaries, I think you saw a number of more conservative legislator uh, candidates um, get win their primaries. And so if they go on to win the general election, you might have an even stronger Liberty Caucus uh, in the legislature that could have an effect on, on leadership in the next session. And we, we got a little, yeah, we got a little preview of that at the end of the session this year, actually, uh, in the House specifically, after the, uh, the Senate adjourned sine die, they adjourned and said they were done for the year on a Thursday. And the House decided to stick around because they wanted the, the ability to override any vetoes that were coming. And um, that Friday morning, the more conservative wing of the House Republican Party voted to stay, whereas the more moderate wing sided with the Democrats. And it was it was a very close vote and just barely the House decided to adjourn. And uh, like Scott says, if a few more conservative members of the party come in, it, it could be a situation where the conservative wing of the party can do whatever they want and there's not enough moderates to occasionally side with the Democrats and, and, and tap the brakes on anything. Scott, you mentioned the state Republican convention a little bit earlier. And, and Logan, I know that you have been looking at some of the resolutions and, and rule changes that might come out of this meeting. Um, a lot of them are COVID-19 related. Can you talk about how this really has become a, uh, a, a point of debate among Republicans? Yeah, so they do. They they did take up the um, support for um, a special session. They they did actually pass something today, according to Nate Brown of the Post Register, who's doing fantastic coverage of the convention. Um, but they they passed something saying that they could immediately call themselves into uh, a special session themselves. Uh, there, you know, there's some legal uh, discussion debate about that. Uh, but they did pass that at the convention today. And they also passed support for a legislative or a constitutional amendment to allow the legislature to call themselves into a session. So right now only the governor can call them into a special session and they want a constitutional amendment. Um, they also passed a resolution opposing contact tracing. Uh, like I said, they, they talked a lot about that at the, the meeting on Tuesday. And so now that is a, a formal resolution of the Republican Party in Idaho uh, to oppose contact tracing. All right, Logan, Scott, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks. On Thursday evening, Governor Brad Little told us during a live interview on Idaho Public Television that he is open to the idea of a special session. If you missed that interview with Governor Little and Idaho Department of Health and Welfare Director Dave Jepson, you can watch that online at IdahoPTV.org.
Thanks for watching. We're off next week, but we'll be back the second week of July. For updates in the meantime, make sure you're following Idaho Reports on Facebook and Twitter, where we bring you updated numbers and analysis throughout the week. And just a reminder, you can also listen to all of our programs and web extras in podcast form. Search for Idaho Reports on your favorite podcast platform, including Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. See you next time, and until then, stay safe, Idaho. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.